Please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll be wrapping this study up, which began about a year ago. I'm going to read to you one verse, which is the most universally esteemed statement that Jesus ever made. Whether you're a believer in Christ or not, people love this statement. Throughout history, it has had parallels. Lots of other religions bring statements like this, but there's a difference. All of them bring it in the form of a negative. Don't do to others what you don't want done to you. But Christ changed it. He put it in the positive, and in doing so, created a standard that is much higher, a standard that could only be met in him, but a standard that he is calling us to. It's important to say, before I read this verse, that there's a danger in only reading one verse. And that is you would take this verse out of its context, which we can't do. It was part of his larger sermon, and where he placed it is important. And it's exactly where he wanted it to be. I'll explain as we go forward. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jesus preached these words, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. In looking at this verse, Jesus is extremely simple, and he's very clear. He could not be more clear. We know what he is calling us to do, but we also know if we're honest that we can't live this out. We can't even live this out today, not even for a whole day. We can't, and he knows that, but he calls us to it anyway. Three years ago, the world really changed. Churches, schools, all sorts of industry were faced with decisions that we had never encountered. We weren't sure what to do. When I began to preach during that season of the pandemic and then all that followed it with the racially charged dynamics in our own country, I began almost every sermon for several weeks asking you a question. Who are you listening to? It's a very important question. Who are you listening to? Francis Schaeffer, I quoted him three years ago, said that when the world goes through a crisis like the one we were going through, it is the golden opportunity for the church the golden opportunity for the church to shine because the world is watching. How are we going to respond? Were we going to respond standing up for truth, which we can never compromise? But are we going to do it in a way that brings God glory? Even remembering a verse like this. This golden opportunity, it really always exists. And the reason is because this side of heaven, we are always going to be in relational strife. 
And the relational strife that exists is directly a result of the fall going all the way back to the book of Genesis. We feel it too. Christ knows it. That's why he came. And he gives us these instructions. I think, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think most of us know this verse probably by heart, might even say it often. But I would imagine that you have never spent a lot of time unpacking it, which is what we're going to do today. One verse. And we're going to unpack a few important lines here. And I'm going to ask you to do something. Whether you're a note taker or not, I want you to do this. Whether you do it now while you're listening or later today, it doesn't matter to me, but I really want you to do it because I think it's important. In fact, if you won't do it, I don't think you take this verse seriously. I think you think of it as many do as just a cliche or something that would be nice if it's aspirational. It's not. It is something that Christ is calling his people to. And we are called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. So I'm gonna ask you to make a few lists and I'm gonna ask you to draw something. And children, I want you to pay attention because I want you to draw it too and later on I want you to talk about it with your parents. So let's look at this verse. Matthew 7, 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. I want you to make a list. Here's the first list. What do you wish others would do to you? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever spent time thinking about what do I want others to do to me? How do I want others to relate to me? I think it's important that you ask because it makes no sense in your life if you just read it and move on without knowing really the way in which you would like to be treated. Now, as you make your list, you have to make sure it is according to scripture. You can't add things in there that aren't from God's word. But I want you to hear my list. What do you wish others would do for you? Mark, I wish they would love me. I wish they would listen to me. I wish they would respect me. I wish that they would treat me with dignity, justice, truth. I wish that they would correct me when I'm wrong, and I'm wrong every day, but gently. I wish they would do what Jesus said, not judge me. I wish they would not gossip and slander me. Have you ever gossiped about me? That's funny, the same thing happened at 9.30. Just this little nervous laughter went through the congregation. Well, the truth is, most of you probably have. And I probably have in my own mind about you. It's our nature. But I wish you wouldn't. You wish I wouldn't too. I wish people would give me the benefit of the doubt. And I wish people would forgive me when I've wronged them. What do you wish others would do to you? I want you to make that list. You can use mine and build on it, but I think it's important that you do it. Here's why. Second list. Who are the others? Jesus said, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, who are the others? Well, the others are your family members your friends, your classmates, your coworkers, your teammates, your leaders, 
fellow citizens, brothers and sisters in Christ, members of other nations, including leaders of other nations. We would like to say at least enemies aren't on the list. But if you remember what Jesus said, maybe about a minute and a half before he got to this, he said these very words. You've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Remember, Jesus wants to make much of the Father and our sonship. So who are others? It's everyone. Make that list. And then get specific with that list. Write your family members down, your teammates down, your classmates, your coaches. Make that list. And then ask this question. Of the list that I made of how I wish others would treat me, am I treating that list of others the same way? Am I thinking about them the way I want people to think about me? Am I speaking about them to others the way I want people to speak about me? And then make another list. Who are the ones I have not done that with? Who are the ones I'm currently not doing that with? I really want you to make that list. In fact, if you don't make that list, I think you're in danger of doing the very thing Jesus is gonna close his sermon with. Where he says, you listened, but you didn't hear. You heard what was said, but you didn't obey it. So this is called application. Now, children, all of us, I want you to do some art. The art is gonna be very simple. On some white page, you can use your bulletin if you want, or later when you get home, I want you to take some writing utensil, and starting at the top of the page, I just want you to draw a straight line. I want you to draw a straight line, not using any straight edge, just freehand it, just a straight line. That's it, we can all do it. Now where am I going with this? Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, who was the longtime preacher, of 10th Presbyterian Church, a PCA church in Philadelphia, an incredible man studying the word, writing multiple volumes of commentaries. He shares this illustration in his commentary on Matthew 7, 12. He says, imagine a teacher going into a classroom, in her classroom, and she instructs her elementary students to draw a straight line. That's all. While they're doing that, she steps out of the room because somebody's called her into the hall. She goes into the hall. The kids have done their work. It didn't take very long. So while she's out of the room, what do they do? They begin to compare one another's straight lines. Some were meticulous, going very, very slow. Some were quick to get through it. But as they look at one another's, what they're doing is seeing whose line is the straightest. One child says to another, mine's straighter than yours. Two boys see another, hers is straighter than ours. One of them says to the other, well, that's because she has a better writing utensil. The teacher then walks back in. They get quiet. All the lines have been written down or drawn. And then she takes one by one a straight edge, a ruler. And she takes her writing utensil and then goes straight down. Here's the point. 
The golden rule is a standard, and it could be called the golden straight edge. I want you to see that however gifted you are at drawing a straight line, when you put the golden standard to it, the golden rule, and you go straight, you're going to see how it veers off. It's not as straight as you think. You're not as good as you think. And if it's really close, here's what I want you to do. I want you to keep drawing a straight line connected to that page every day the rest of your life. Friends, we miss the mark. This passage is called the golden rule. And there is a golden standard that Christ has set. And in this golden standard, he is teaching us the way we are to respond to all people we're in relationship with. And he speaks in such a way that he calls us to be who he's called us to be, even to people who don't deserve it. Now, I know some of you are in relationships where they could be dangerous. There could have been things that have happened. There's a context for that. You need to know that I understand that. But that's not the majority of our lives or times. This is important for us to see that Jesus is trying to set apart his followers and how they relate to others. So how can we live this out? Here's the first thing I think we need to know. Jesus is gonna make this point four different ways over the next four sections of the Sermon on the Mount. First, we need to realize that Jesus wasn't preaching this sermon in order that we could simply praise the sermon. He wasn't giving us the summary of the law and the prophet in order for it to be praised. He gave it so that it would be practiced. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, our Lord did not preach the Sermon on the Mount in order that you and I might comment upon it, but in order that we might carry it out. And in our tradition, we love to make comments. We love to spend our time talking about what did you think of the sermon? What did you think of the podcast? What did you think of the book? That's a fair question, but that's not the end. The end isn't to say, I had a wiser comment than you, or I commented about somebody that's older and dead, so I'm deeper. No, the whole point is that this is to be carried out. That really, the people of God are to love others as they love themselves. So how do we do it? First, we have to understand that this whole thing is a theological problem. And when there is a theological problem, we have to start with the theological answer, which means we've got to go to the right place first. And where do we go? We go to God himself. How does God describe himself and his word? When we begin to see the way in which he described himself as holy, other than, set apart, sacred, righteous, perfect, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, when we begin to see who he is, we recognize in humility, blessed are the poor in spirit, his first words, we recognize in humility that we are not him and that we're very, very small. Secondly, as we look at it theologically, we have to understand not only who he is, but who does he say we are? I want you to go to Ephesians. Grab the Blue Pew Bible in front of you. 
turn to the right several, several pages and you'll find the book of Ephesians written to the people of Ephesus. I want you to turn to Ephesians 2. And I want you to see the way in which Paul describes us. Verse 1 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul wrote these words. They're very significant. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, now let me stop. These four babies that were baptized, the parents holding them, the siblings that were with them, that's true of them, just as it's true of all mankind. Now, some of you might be grandparents, like, well, hold on now. Our granddaughter, our grandson, hey, I'm a grandpa now too. And my little granddaughter, who's six months old, seems perfect. I've yet to see her sin. I haven't. But she's a sinner. She belongs to what Paul says here. Children at some age are going to reveal that sin. I remember Matt Chandler talking about one of his children taking the remote, going to the other child, and hitting them on the head. Where did they learn that? He had not done that to his wife. She had not done that to him. They had done it to none of the other children. They didn't have to learn it. It's in us. And what Paul is saying here with great eloquence and great power is that we all are like this, not some of us. We are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And at the center of all of it is the real problem, and that's self. The verse that Jesus gives us in Matthew 7, 12 is not hard to understand. It's very clear, but it's so hard to live out. It's so hard to live out that many of us have just simply said, I can't, so I won't. And that's not what Christ is after. It's not what he's after. He's calling us to his standard and he's enabling us because of who we are in him to live out what is impossible. But we've got to see God first and then we've got to see ourselves. This is a relationship problem. I want you to think about the last time you saw the news. Maybe it was this morning, maybe it was last night, sometime yesterday. Think about what you heard in just a few minutes. Everything you heard is going to be connected to the fall of man. Relationships that are broken, murders that are committed, wars that take place. This theological problem is a relational problem. And it goes all the way back to the beginning where Adam and Eve, a real man and a real woman were created without sin, without sin. They had no wrong thoughts, no wrong feelings. They didn't say a wrong thing to one another. They didn't treat one another wrongly. Nothing was wrong until they fell. And when they fell, they, we were told that their eyes were open. And then their, as their eyes were open, they realized they were naked. And how you see this in Genesis 3 is that the relationship between this man and this woman, between Adam and Eve, is suddenly broken. They hide from one another. Their nakedness is exposed and they're ashamed. They feel guilt. So as they seek to cover themselves, they also realize their relationship with God is broken. God gives us his first question in the Bible, where are you? 
It's not because he didn't know. He's all-knowing. But he's indicating, even now, I'm coming for you. Eve soon gives birth to two boys. As the boys grow up, their sin is revealed, never greater than when one kills the other. And mankind, we've been killing one another ever since. Not always physically, but with our words. Jesus Christ delivers this sermon from his very own mouth. And as he does so, he gives us a strong call. How do you wish to be treated by others? Treat them the same way. But what about when they don't deserve it? In your list of others, I know you experienced that category. How are we as believers to act? The solution is to lift our eyes towards God. Hear this. God, the Father, demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not once we cleaned ourselves up, not once we came to a place of deserving it more than we did before. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't deserve it. We never did. We never will. That's why it's called grace. Back to Ephesians 2, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So let's go back to your list. How do you wish people to treat you? Make that list. Who are the others in your life? Are you treating all of them the same way as you want to be treated? The answer is no. Not every one of them. There are people in your life, and again, you may be in a situation where there's danger that has to be understood. But for most of us, that's not the case. Most of us, it's somebody that's just bothered us. A relationship and business that went wrong. A conflict that we're just seeing it from two different sides. So what is Christ calling you to do? He is calling you who has received from him what you didn't deserve to offer the very same thing to a person that doesn't deserve it. And you and I can not do it apart from Christ. So why did he place this verse here? Last Sunday I said that if you ever wonder what the application is to any sermon, it's Matthew 7, 7 to 11. Ask, seek, knock. Ask continually. It's a present imperative. Ask continually. Seek continually. Knock continually. And God will answer that prayer. He will give you whatever is necessary for you to be the person he's calling you to be. 
Three years ago, I asked you, who are you listening to? In that time and since that time, I watched the church, not just PCPC, the church, in many cases, behave so embarrassingly bad. We missed the golden opportunity. We were quick to stand up for truth and things we had convictions about, and we should always do that. But the way in which we engaged with others oftentimes was horrific. That was true outside the church and inside the church. So often we looked more like a, a set of anchor people on a news set debating. So I ask you, who do you listen to? If the way you're treating other people looks more like somebody on the TV channel or your favorite podcast that is spewing things in a way that is not relevant to the way Christ calls us to act, stop listening. If you're in a small group that begins or ends or even in the middle continues to talk poorly about other people created in the image of God, get out of that group. But don't leave before saying gently and lovingly, we're not acting the way Christ has called us to act. Now, right now, some of you are thinking, you're encouraging us to compromise the truth. No. Remember what I said on my list? I want you to listen to me. Never compromise the truth. We can't. We can't. But Christ also didn't, doesn't give us the freedom to behave in a way that's not like him ever. You and I can't do it. So why does he put it here? First thing he says as he moves into the section, and Paul Goebel preached this so beautifully a few weeks ago, do not judge others. Then he moves into the prayer part. Ask, seek, knock. Ask, seek, knock. Ask, seek, knock. And do you remember how he ends that section? Let me remind you. He says this. Which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give things to those who deserve it? Is that what it says? No. You should judge me. I'm added to Scripture. It doesn't say to those who deserve it. It says, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We will never, ever deserve it. That's what the gospel has to do with the golden straight edge, the golden rule. We never deserve it. So what Christ is saying is, look up. Remember what my Father has given you. Luke will tell us it's the Holy Spirit in the power of who I am and what I've done in Christ alone, now treat others as you wish to be treated. And friends, it's going to be messy. It's going to be frightening at times. But it's the call that Christ has given because it takes us to the end of ourselves. Some have translated this passage as inspirational, like Jesus was calling us to be good. This is not a passage that is recommending goodness. 
It's actually showing the danger of that kind of thinking. We can't do it. But in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, we can stand and love and tell the truth with gentleness and conviction and treat others the way we wish to be treated. Father in heaven, you did what is beyond comprehension in sending us your son. Christ Jesus, you obeyed what none of us could obey. And you died the death that we all deserve to die. What we deserved, we didn't receive. What we deserved, we didn't receive. You took it. Lord, would you enable us to see the beauty of the passion of Jesus in all of its gore so that we could be reminded that who we are in you is secure. And from that place of absolute security, we can in your power be that light. The golden opportunities still exist that we can love in a way that the world doesn't understand but is drawn to. And it would be because we look like the one who came for us who saved us, who has us in his grip. Father, give courage to, our, to us, give grace to us, and do not leave us alone. Press this deep into us, even to the point where we would have conversations with those we know we need to speak to. We pray this, Lord, in your glorious name. Amen. Please stand.